Jay, are there any universes where Nathaniel Essex isn't Mr. Sinister? Oh, gosh, let me think, Miles. Well, the one in the barony of King James's England on Battleworld is just a noble, and you could probably make a decent case for the Essex of Earth-1610. The ultimate universe. Yeah, Essex's history there was significantly different. He was a regular scientist working for Oscorp, ended up experimenting on himself, hallucinated, and then channeled Apocalypse. You know how it goes. But he went by Sinister there, right? I may be misremembering, but I think he only did that while he was semi-possessed by Apocalypse. After that, he's always in long sleeves when you see him anyway. Why would that matter? Is he cold? Well, Miles, the thing about codenames is that they may be fleeting, but you know what's forever? Continuity? Bad gothic font tattoos. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 292 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera, and currently, its greatest alternate universe counterpart, Earth-295, The Age of Apocalypse. Yes, indeed, we've been doing The Age of Apocalypse for more than a month now, and, and we still have a lot left. Okay, but right now, I'm kind of still stuck on Ultimate Sinister's bad tattoo deeks. You know what the most bullshit thing about that is? Is it the word damaged across his forehead? No, but that is his basic character design. No, no, here's the thing. Sinister is eight letters. So you're saying they should be knuckle tattoos? Yes! If you're gonna have a stupid tattoo of your own codename, at least do knuckle tats. That's... If not cool, then reasonably fun and daring. Yeah, if you can't be cool, at least be fun. I completely agree. Stupid ultimate sinister. Bleh. I know, right? Before we dive into the episode proper, we have a very time-sensitive announcement. Please help us raise money for independent comic shops and bookstores impacted by COVID-19 in the Creators for Comics auction on Twitter. Between the two of us, we've got a couple auctions. One is for both of us to record your voicemail greeting, and one is for a private remote screening of X-Men Origins Wolverine with Jay, who's thrown in a bunch of other stretch goals along the way. For the voicemail recording, you can bid at our Twitter, Explain the X-Men, and for the screening, go to Jay's Twitter, not Lasers. Both auctions end at noon Eastern time on Monday, April 20th. Well, anyway, we're not here to talk about the Ultimate Universe, we're here to talk about the Ultimate Parallel Universe. That is not the Ultimate Universe. This is Earth-295, the Age of Apocalypse, where, fortunately, Mr. Sinister is every bit the overdramatic delight he is in the 616, plus a lot of political power. Speaking of politics, Jay, what are we talking about today? Well, today we are going to be looking at Factor X. This is the third of the major central series of the Age of Apocalypse that we're looking at, and this one is all about the baddies. I'm really, really excited for it. First, though, since again, this is a jumping on point for a lot of people, and this is a weird universe, let's give a little bit of background so folks know what we're coming into when we start to talk about the EMF and all of those guys. Thanks to an accidental time paradox, Professor Xavier was killed back in the 1970s, and reality diverged from there. Most relevantly, the survival of the fittest obsessed immortal mutant apocalypse took over North America, basing his empire on what used to be Manhattan, and Magneto formed the X-Men in his late friend's memory a bit too late to stop that ascension. As we know, Apocalypse is nothing if not a very effective manager, so he created a frequently revolving set of subordinates to manage his domains, his four, or thereabouts, horsemen. One of those horsemen is the smugly glam Nathaniel Essex, a moral geneticist and Mr. Sinister if you are nasty, and particularly if you are one of the nasty boys, the team that he hires on 616. I don't think they exist in 295, and that's a shame because they really should. They'd fit the universe so well. You know why they don't? Because they're redundant to the rest of it? No. Too nasty. While Sinister 616 had a hand in Cyclops and Havoc's backstories, in the Age of Apocalypse, Sinister not only raised both Summers brothers from childhood, but set them up to kill their father when he showed up back on Earth, deepening the rift that already separated Scott and Alex. 
Their rise to power among Apocalypse's legions has had a few other hiccups too. Years later, when Weapon X broke the captured X-Man Jean Grey out of Sinister's breeding pen, Cyclops tried to stop him, zarking off one of Logan's hands and losing one of his own eyes in the fight. As for Havoc, in the Age of Apocalypse, he's just sort of a petty jerk, resentful of living in his brother's shadow. One thing's for certain, though, he definitely hasn't finished his dissertation. So, Factor X, before we dive into what may be the best Age of Apocalypse miniseries, I want to lay one thing on the table. The title of this book is stupid. It doesn't mean anything. They just took the title X-Factor and they switched the order of the parts for no reason. Agreed. Okay, so that being said, yeah, Jay, this is really good. Yeah, this might actually be my favorite of the Central Age of Apocalypse series, and not just because it's the Summers Brothers book, although I will admit that that's definitely a factor. A factor X, if you will. Wah, wah. So one of the things I like about this book, uh, aside from its general quality, is its relationship to the main Marvel Universe book it's based on. Because on the surface, this is nothing like X-Factor. That is, you know, Havoc and Polaris and everybody doing their thing and having wacky adventures with Val Cooper and working for the government. And this is a bunch of bad guys who are Mr. Sinister's lieutenants in this horrible post-apocalyptic timeline. The first and most obvious connection, I think, is Havoc. Havoc is certainly there. He's a main character. But when you think about it, this group, Sinister's elite mutant force, they're really just the Age of Apocalypse's own government-sponsored team of mutants. They're working for the existing power structure. It's just that while in the main Marvel Universe, the government is sort of, you know, gray, sometimes good, sometimes bad, in the Age of Apocalypse, it's just straight-up genocidal fascist terrible. Yeah, and make no mistake about it, the main characters of this series are not the good guys. Um, in fact, I want to go ahead and quote uh, John Francis Moore, the writer of this series. These characters are not heroes. I like to think of them as French aristocracy just before the revolution, consumed in their own affairs and uncaring about the world around them. That's from the X-Men Collector's Preview comic that we mentioned back in our first Age of Apocalypse episode, which was sort of this preview magazine with little interviews with all the creators and stuff. I know I keep saying it, but God, I love John Francis more on X-Books. I really do, too. Like, I've never actually read X-Men 2099, and now I'm thinking maybe I should. Right? I've only heard really good things about it, so... But yeah, the political element is totally central. It's all about scheming and backstabbing and resentment and plans that go horribly awry, and it's so engaging. You mentioned the collector's preview, and there's actually a really great quote from artist Steve Epting as well, sort of setting up the scenario. Scott is the spoiled and pampered heir to Sinister's throne. He's Sinister's firstborn son and clearly his father's favorite. However, there's a streak of decency that runs through Scott. In the back of his mind, he knows his father is doing wrong, and he tries to rebel against it. I made the costume reflect that. He has the sinister uniform, but he's made adjustments to it. He also goes against the militaristic look by having long hair. We're also going to see four of the original five X-Men show up in this series at various points, as they did, you know, at the very beginning of X-Factor. Now, unlike that, they're not on the same team. Many of them are at very direct odds. But I think this is the book that has at least the highest concentration of X-Men who showed up in the Silver Age, because it's got Havoc and Polaris as well, and a few others. Exactly. It's just poor Bobby Drake left out, just like he was from Claremont's entire main run, except for that one issue where he was a backup team member that went into Murder World. It, he was busy in accountancy. It's important stuff. Going forward, in fact, um, Moore and Epting are going to be the new X-Factor team, but for now, let's talk about Factor X starts with um, an issue titled Sinister Neglect, written, as we mentioned, by John Francis Moore, penciled by Steve Epting, inked by Al Milgram, and colored by Glynis Oliver. And while this isn't the case throughout the series, Sinister does narrate this specific issue, and my God, is he delightful. When Apocalypse took Washington, his army was a cadre of mutants, savage and unyielding in battle against human and misguided mutant alike. Now, if, in the aftermath of their victory, they have succumbed to a certain decadent cruelty, I can forgive them for it. After all, in so many ways, they are my children. 
Sinister is, I'm not going to say heroic, but he at least opposes the really, really bad guys in this series, but he's still sinister. Oh, he doesn't oppose the really, really bad guys. He just specifically doesn't want them to destroy Earth because it's where he keeps his stuff. Sinister is not exactly, I was thinking about this going into this, because we see Sinister as a character who betrays everyone, and he doesn't. He doesn't betray anyone. It's just that he's never really allied with anyone. There are just people whose agendas happen to overlap with his for brief periods of time. Sinister doesn't care what Apocalypse does from an ethical standpoint. He just hears the word genocide and goes, oh, but I enjoy genes. Exactly. Including the gray kind. Eh? Eh? See what I did there? Yep. I see what you did. So, as we saw in X-Men Alpha, Mr. Sinister has left Apocalypse's stronghold. He has just completely vanished, despite being one of Apocalypse's four horsemen, one of Apocalypse's top generals. And that's where we open here. We open with what Sinister leaves behind. That's his elite mutant force, these sort of lieutenants who are composed of pairs or trios of siblings. We talked a bit about them in one of the Tales from the Age of Apocalypse issues, but this series really focuses on them. Yeah, because they're sinister, as as Miles said, they're all siblings. So first among them, we've got Cyclops and Havoc. Cyclops runs the EMF. He's also in charge of the slave pens, and aside from the war crimes, is basically his overfocused, relatively boring 616 self. Havoc is head of security and is a raging douchebag. And I should say, if you're just coming in with Age of Apocalypse, when I describe Cyclops as boring... That's not an insult. He's my favorite character, but he is—he—he—he is—he is not a fun guy to hang out with, and—and and even less so in this world. Describing Havoc as a raging douchebag, though, oh, that's totally an insult. I love Havoc in the main universe. I mean, he's flawed, but I love him. This Havoc is almost entirely irredeemable. Like, you kind of get why he's such a jerk, but that doesn't change how much of a jerk he is. Oh yeah, he's the second worst Summers brother in the multiverse. Oh yeah, I mean. Oh, yeah, I guess Vulcan is still even worse than Age of Apocalypse Havoc. Vulcan has committed genocide on a scale that no one in Age of Apocalypse touches. Not even Apocalypse. Yeah, you're totally right. Yeah, also, he's also it's a bad retcon. So who's our next pair of siblings in the EMF? Next, we have French-Canadian twins North Star and Aurora. In the 616, we can find them in Alpha Flight. What are they like in Earth-295? They're fucking creepy. They're total jerks. They're full of themselves. They have no mercy or interest in uh, not murdering anybody around them. One of the things that was in that X-Men Collector's preview that John Francis Moore was talking about, it didn't make it into the final series, but apparently he was planning for them to have invented their own language to talk to each other in because they felt that they were too good to talk to anybody else in the world, which... Yeah, I uh, I kind of buy that, actually. It's like asshole twin speak. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense because they're twins until you then explain the justification for it. It's like, oh, no, no, they're just, just kind of awful. Well, from there, we've got a pair of siblings, one of whom is going to be familiar to anyone who's who's familiar in this, with the 616 up to this point because we have a pair of Guthries. These are Sam and Elizabeth Guthrie. They are Cannonball and Amazon. Um, Elizabeth is, is, as far as I know, entirely new to the Age of Apocalypse. The Guthrie siblings in the 616 vary significantly in number, gender, and hair color. They're very, very inconsistent. Elizabeth does show up in the main Marvel universe, but she's just a generic Guthrie sibling. She doesn't really do much, and I don't think she ever manifests her powers. Okay, so... It, in the Age of Apocalypse, she can get gigantic and super strong, but this is actually the specific point where my suspension of belief, which obviously can accept a lot, starts to shake in the Age of Apocalypse, because I can accept a lot of things in an alternate universe, but I have a whole lot of trouble accepting Sam Guthrie as this much of a jerk. One touch that I really like in his character design, though, it's a little thing, but he has black face paint in a line over his eyes extending to his hairline. And something about that, something about that kind of anonymizing visual makes it work for me. This is a Sam Guthrie who has just been turned into something else. Like, he hasn't developed into the Sam we know and love. The world has just taken him in a vastly different direction. Yeah, it's Sam Guthrie. Yeah, it's Cannonball. But this is not our Sam, not our Cannonball at all. You can say that again. Now, the next pair of siblings are 
original to the Age of Apocalypse. We're going to see one of them appear back in the 616 later on, but this is really their their debut, this, this event. These are Jesse and Terrence Aronson, the Bedlam brothers, who are great. Like, they're weirdly chill and normal dudes given their jobs. Yeah, I mean, they're complicit in horrible, horrible war crimes, but, you know, they seem nice, and they're not, like, super, super terrible like Havoc or North Star Noara. There are a couple of things that I notice about them. The first is that they're young. Like, they've, this is clearly the world they're familiar with. The second is that they see themselves very much as the good guys. They really bask in the adulation that they get, and they don't seem to recognize the fear that goes with it. So, which, which, which is, are sort of both, both interesting. Again, yeah, complicit in massive, massive war crimes have probably directly committed a fairly large number of them. But on the scale of baddies, probably the ones who are our most pleasantest people. This is a really terrible scale. Anyway, they go by the Bedlam Brothers, and that name comes from the fact that they both have scrambling powers. Jesse can mess up machines and electronics, and Terrence is a telepath whose entire telepathy shtick is is just making minds go all scrambled. Both of those are temporary effects. So when the series starts, like we mentioned, Sinister has disappeared. And Cyclops has clearly started developing some concerns, not only about Sinister's whereabouts, but about his own job and the value of life. He's reluctant to kill escaping prisoners. Havoc, on the other hand, is, is really just all about murder whenever he can get away with it. Yeah, there's this very brief scene that the series opens with where a bunch of characters who are similar to the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants of the mid-90s, but not identical. Like, we have Artemis instead of Callisto and Newt instead of Toad and stuff like that. Uh, But yeah, they're escaping, and Cyclops is like, halt, because it's the law. And Havoc is like, ha ha ha, I will disintegrate you, because I'm terrible. Yeah, he's a really big jerk. Now, as we mentioned in the lead-up, Scott is Sinister's favorite, and he's also the one with more institutional power. Alex, meanwhile, has less than subtle dreams of unseating his brother and tries to curry favor with the eminently practical Hank McCoy. My brother seems preoccupied lately. His reflexes are dulled, his judgment impaired. As a scientist, you know that change is inevitable. Hypothetically, I will support whoever allows me to continue my work here. And you should remember that Sinister holds your brother in high regard. He'll not lightly overlook a fratricide. Okay, let's talk Beast in the Age of Apocalypse. Oh god, Beast is really unsettling. We're going to be doing a spotlight on on villains in general at the end of this episode, but Beast is one of the creepiest translations, largely because he is completely recognizable as Hank McCoy. He has Hank McCoy's mannerisms, he has his vocal tics, he has his speech patterns, he has his catchphrases. Yeah, he's Beast if Beast just didn't give a shit about ethics or morality at all. Yeah, he is He is an actively amoral and sadistic Hank McCoy who's otherwise Hank McCoy. And the thing is... He's very, very easily recognizable in ways that a lot of the other characters aren't as a there but for the grace of God. Because the other characters have these complicated alternate histories, but it's really easy to see where this Hank is like one left turn from 616. One cool thing about him visually, so this Hank also experimented on himself and got all furry, but he's gray and furry just like Hank initially was when he first mutated back in the 70s before he became blue. And that was kind of like almost a horror story that he was in then. It was all about, God, what have I turned into? I'm this horrifying beast. And so that's the look we get here. I mean, like he's shaggier, he's spikier. It's not exactly the same, but choosing to have him be gray instead of blue is such a nice little detail that says so much. Well, and as I recall, they decided to shift him blue, both because he was getting colored in that direction anyway, because that's how you, you know, tint things and, and show highlights on, on grays and blacks, but also because of the gray, he looked much more monstrous and the blue, he looked much more, you know, friendly. Exactly. So they just kept this one gray. It's perfect. Scott, meanwhile, is busy investigating Sinister's disappearance, and he's also no fun, so the Bedlam brothers, who are pretty much always out for a night on the town, bring Havoc with them to heaven again. Heaven, as you may recall, is the club that Angel runs, Warren Kenneth Worthington III. It is nominally neutral territory, and it kind of alternates between being the Kit Kat Club from Cabaret and Rick's Bar from Casablanca. 
I mean, in this issue, there's even an overheard quote about a guy named Laszlo in Letters of Transit. Like, they're they're not being subtle in their references, and that's fine. Wait, what if instead of a reference to Casablanca, it's actually a reference to Overdrawn at the Memory Bank? Or it could be a reference to the movie version of Barbed Wire. Or wait, was that before or after 1995? I have no idea. The point is, lots of things reference Casablanca, and this is probably one of the better things to do so. At Heaven, the Bedlam brothers neatly disrupt an attempted suicide bombing by Henry Peter Gyrick. Um, this is clearly just business as usual here. Like, this is something that happens so regularly it hardly even blips the radar. Havoc slips off to do some kissing with Scarlet, the human torch singer with whom he's been involved for a pretty long time. And by human torch singer, you mean the torch singer who is a human, not the human torch Johnny Storm who is a singer. I do, but now I'm really kind of sad that it wasn't that. Damn it. I was so excited to see Scarlet in X-Men Alpha and in Factor X when I was a kid. Like, I was such a fan of the Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown series, and I never thought we would see the human spy Alex Summers betraying love interest Scarlet again. Yeah, Scarlet is fantastic, and as Miles mentioned, she's only ever appeared in one weird little miniseries, which we love and the universe at large has kind of forgotten. Um, You can hear us talk about that in earlier episodes. I'll link those in the visual companion to this one. But Scarlet is great, and she is... She doesn't get as much, you know, central uh, page time here as she does in that, but she is, I think, similarly complex. There's a lot of hints around that. And the Bedlam brothers are joking later about Havoc hooking up with a human, and he is furious that anybody would imply he would do something like that, even though he totally is. So two episodes ago, we talked about the extent to which the Age of Apocalypse doesn't really have the mutant metaphor because of its politics and because of the fact that mutants are the controlling power here. Now, here is a place where Moore is kind of using some mutant metaphor tools that are, I think, among the ones that work less well, which is when it specifically appropriates the language of actual oppression. In this context, referring to human mutant pairings as miscegenation, which is a term that's been that was used initially legally and is still racistly used in the US to refer to interracial couples. That's not the only time that's going to happen in this series, but I think it's one of the it's probably the most glaring and I I really wish that he had had pulled a different word. Like I see what he was going for, but I think that this is one of those places where you just make up a new term. Back at headquarters, Cyclops convinces the rest of the elite mutant force to help him break into Sinister's private labs to see where the hell Sinister is. But when they do, the labs are trashed because Sinister left and blew everything up behind him, including his base in the head of the giant statue of Apocalypse that replaced the Statue of Liberty. The one we talked about on the first page of that Corsair story in Tales from the Age of Apocalypse. Like, on the one hand, I'm sad that that incredible image is gone. But on the other hand, I'm really impressed with Sinister for building his secret betrayal base inside the head of the statue of his boss. And it's okay, because as we'll see soon, it's not the only monument that Apocalypse has uh, erected to his own glory, and the other one is definitely still standing. (laughs) That brings us to Factor X number two, Abandoned Children, written by John Francis Moore, penciled by Steve Epting, inked by Al Milgram, and colored by Glynis Oliver. And we open in the breeding pens, the oft-referenced prison full of captives of Mr. Sinister and Beast's research. We open there specifically with Lorna Dane, Polaris, you know, one of the main characters of X-Factor. She's one of the prisoners, and she's watching a mysterious shadowy cloaked figure save a couple of different ones. This is... Magneto, this cloaked figure, or at least what Polaris perceives to be Magneto, whom she also believes to be her father. And this Magneto, as Polaris looks at him, he's got that same quality that the holographic version of Bishop's sister Shard does in the main universe. Like, the way he is digitally colored and the way he's inked, he looks like this flat, uh, sort of unreal, almost ghostly image. And that's our first immediate clue that that's not Magneto, in addition to the fact that it wouldn't make any sense for Magneto to be here and to be talking to people like he is. Now, Polaris herself is not a particularly reliable narrator for a number of reasons. The first, which is covered 
in this series is that she snapped when her family was killed in the early cullings and convinced herself that she was Magneto's daughter. But the second is the reason that Ms. Marvel in the 616 was comatose for a long time, namely that Rogue absorbed Lorna's powers and a lot of her mind. And so the Lorna we see here is perpetually hazy and confused and in this case delusional and she is such a sad figure especially because one of her biggest conflicts and one of her biggest victories in the 616 was really focusing on owning her own identity not having it co-opted by the people around her she's also in the pens and we're gonna learn that all of the prisoners there are basically perpetually psychically anesthetized, or at least sedated, by a set of specially bred telepathic disembodied brains called the Brain Trust that Sinister set up to keep them in line. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good name for them, the Brain Trust. It's such a sinister name, too. But one thing I want to bring up about Polaris before we move on is her character design. Like, you know, she looks mostly like herself. She's got the long, impressive green hair. But she's wearing this weird red jumpsuit that totally clashes with her skin tone and her hair. And it's only in certain angles and certain panels that you realize, oh, she made herself a Magneto costume. She's wearing red. She's got that big riveted purple collar on it. It's just that it's all ripped to shit and filthy, and so it doesn't always look like it. Like... The hope that she holds out, that somehow this figure, Magneto, is her father and will save her, like, it translates to every aspect of her character, design and all. Yeah, she has invested everything she has left in this idea. You alluded to it earlier, Jay, but would you like to read this uh, challenging, if you will, hard narration? <sighs> Rising higher than any of the skyscrapers that once defined the island of Manhattan, Apocalypse's citadel serves as an obscene monument to the mutant conquest of North America. Okay, so that's perfectly valid narration. The tower just looks like an erect penis. It's called an obscene monument, and it looks like an erect penis, and that probably was totally an accident, but I'm sorry, I read this when I was 13, and I just can't not see that. I mean, it doesn't exactly look like an erect penis. It looks like a very upscale designer sex toy made to evoke an erect penis. Okay, valid point. It's the age of Apocalypse. Anyway, so as we saw back in Astonishing X-Men, Apocalypse uh, doesn't really care about Sinister's betrayal because he's like, A, I'm Apocalypse and I'm awesome and I'll kick everybody's ass, and B, if there's conflict, that just means we'll see who the strong truly are. And C, he gets to hang out on a pile of burning skeletons, which as we all know is his happy place. I'm so excited that Marvel Editorial in 1995 was like, all right, if you show Apocalypse, just remember his throne is floating over a pile of burning skeletons. That's very important. Don't get it wrong. He's going to run out eventually. I mean, he's, uh, he's got a pretty good supply he's building. Now, Cyclops is the one who's brought this news to Apocalypse, and despite Apocalypse's reassurances, he keeps on insisting that no, Sinister should be treated as a serious threat. And Apocalypse is so impressed at the fact that this this kid is willing to push back against him that he drops some hints about, you know, hey, how'd you like to be the next horseman, kid, since obviously there's going to be an opening soon. And that just makes Havoc even more mad at his brother and even more dedicated to the idea of killing him. And now he's thinking, hey, if I kill Scott, maybe I can be the next horseman. I can be the horseman of douchiness. Now... Sinister is not the only person who has recently fled Apocalypse HQ. Prisoners from the pens have been getting out as well, and there's only one known witness, Polaris, who's obviously not the most reliable source. And Havoc brings her in and just berates her and even physically abuses her, trying to get information out of her, even when it's clear that she doesn't know what the hell's going on. This hurts because... They're actually such a great couple in the 616. There's just so much respect and camaraderie between the two of them. And so to see this level of abuse between them, fuck. And I think what makes it even worse, and this isn't explicit, but she keeps calling him Alex. Not like prelate Summers or anything like that, but Alex. And that makes me kind of wonder. We know that Havoc hooked up with a human that he wasn't supposed to hook up with. Were he and Polaris involved at some point when she was in the pens or before, and now it's a secret, and 
nobody knows and so he's trying to cover it up like i don't know i i don't really like to think about that yeah that's a question that's never going to be answered and i was wondering about that as well it's not great either way and he is he decides he's going to turn her over to the beast who has means of of prying memories out of people somewhat more directly and he's going to head off to go meet up with scarlet in heaven so we learn a little bit about Scarlet's past here, uh, as she and Havoc talk post-coedily, and in his case, drunkenly. It's kind of like in the 616. She was working for this dude, Doc Neutron, when Havoc and Sabretooth, back when Sabretooth was with Apocalypse, went to take Neutron down, and Scarlet decided to go with the winning side and live a life of luxury in heaven, in Angel's Club. But of course, as soon as Havoc leaves, she picks up the phone and we learn, nope, she's a spy. She's working for the Human High Council because there are a few constants across the entire Marvel Universe in any variant of the timeline. And one of those is that Alex Summers will get betrayed by redheads. It's just that in this case, the redheads are the good guys and he's the bad guy. Well, the other constant here is that Scarlet's allegiances are complex. Beast is as... Alex told him to, uh, trying to interrogate Polaris, but very quickly goes to the easy way of doing that, which is just to cut her skull open and poke at her brain. I guess his science can, uh, can get information that way. Or at least plans to. Because if rules are ever being broken, and right now, because the humans and Apocalypse are technically negotiating with the Kelly Pact, this is a rule to not do that. If rules are being broken, only one man can show up to save the day. This is always going to take me back to that coloring activity book page of the, the I'm Cyclops and whatever you're doing, I'm here to stop it. Yeah. Now, in this case, it's actually pretty awesome. And when Beast uh, talks shit about how like, hey, I just want to do my research and I don't give a shit about anything else. Cyclops just uses his optic blast to blow up Beast's entire lab and basically says, and if she gets hurt and I hear about it, I'm coming back. So Polaris is returned to the pens. And in fact, that night... The same cloaked figure she's seen before, the same one who she, this time as well, sees as Magneto comes, and this time it's to rescue her and get her out, to turn her over to Val Cooper, who has a speedboat and is apparently working with the underground. And of course, it's not Magneto, it's Cyclops, as was foreshadowed to the point where it's obvious, which I don't think is a bad narrative choice. Like, I like that we know it's the case, but we only find out when an external witness like Val Cooper does. And she's like, well, I wasn't expecting you of all people to help, but I guess I'll take it. And unfortunately, he is so proud of being awesome that he takes his hood off, letting his beautiful long hair flow in the wind, which is exactly what his brother, who's watching with techno binoculars a number of miles away, needed. Now Alex has evidence that Scott is in fact a traitor, which means Alex gets to like, I don't know, kill Scott, take over, awesome things. He's very pleased. This this isn't the mirror enterprise, man. Officers don't always move up by assassination, just often. Uh, yeah, well, that brings us to Factor X number three, Open Wounds. Written once again by John Francis Moore, this time penciled by Steve Epting and Terry Dodson, inked by Al Milgram, and colored by Glynis Oliver. And in the aftermath of his discovery, Havoc achieves what may be his crowning glory, like because he definitely hasn't done anything else worth bra bragging about, which is that he has finally hit strife levels of passive aggression. For instance, Perimeter guards found Northstar and Aurora in critical condition down in the alphabets. But you knew that already, don't you, my brother? And Jean-Paul and Jean-Marie are both comatose and unable to name their assailant. Lucky for you, eh, Scott? What an asshole. And at this point, Cyclops is really starting to question his mandate, to question his job and what he's been doing with his life. I was proud to be a soldier of the Ascension. I believed in the superiority of Homo sapiens superior. But now I see no strength in this institutionalized cruelty. No virtue in the oppression of the weak and infirm. I've risked freeing the few prisoners who might make it north. But there are so many. It's interesting to me that his idea of compassion is still subtly very much informed by Apocalypse's dictates and philosophy. He's as frustrated here by the pointlessness of the cruelty as he is by its impact. Yeah, I think you're totally right. Because one thing we certainly see about Cyclops in any universe is that he is heavily, 
heavily influenced by the authority figures in his life, not just in terms of his actions, but also in terms of his philosophy. Meanwhile, speaking of Scott in any universe and figures he tends to intersect with, we are about to get the first appearance in this series of Jean Grey. She is currently making her way to Sinister, or so she thinks, with a warning about the Human High Council's plan to nuke New York City. Because remember, Sinister talked to Logan and Jean when he gave her the secret information from Apocalypse's plan, so they're kind of allies at this point. Kind of. I mean, again, to the extent to which Sinister is anyone's ally. She is a very powerful telepath, but even she can hardly get past the brain trust, which is a pretty good indicator of just how effective it is. Oh, but it is so awesome. Like, she shows up, she's stowed away in some infinite transport, and she knocks out one of the infinites, and then, like, Weekend at Bernie's animates the infinite to look like it's a guard taking her in, and she's just going into Apocalypse's domain, into Sinister's labs, where she was a prisoner before, alone, getting past, like, these six powerful telepathic brains just through sheer force of will. Like... I know Jean Grey isn't always handled super well in the Age of Apocalypse, but goddamn, she is a badass here. Oh, unquestionably. Now, unfortunately, Jean is disrupted by Wolfsbane, um, or presumably Wolfsbane, whom we only see in wolf form in this universe, at least for now, and then caught by an absolutely delighted Havoc. I think it is Wolfsbane, yeah. Um... And, like, I think Jean mentions at one point that there's some deeper consciousness or humanity inside this wolf's mind. She does, yeah. Yeah, we actually will see the Age of Apocalypse Wolfsbane later in the miniseries by Akira Yoshida. Um, and here, Havoc calls Wolfsbane a good dog, which if you know about, like, their genetic bonding and the weird pseudo-sexual shit that was forced upon them in the 616, is just that much more squicky. Because this Havoc is that much worse a person. But... He is having a very, very, very good day. This must be my lucky day. I finally have a rope to tie around my brother's neck, and Jean Grey, race traitor and known terrorist, shows up at my door. Everything's coming up, Alex. Well, almost everything, because over at Heaven, the Bedlam brothers show up to quietly arrest Scarlet, who... In addition to working for the high, Human High Council, has just realized that she's pregnant. Oh, man. And Angel, playing it neutral for as long as he can, doing his best Lando impression, doesn't intercede. He lets her get taken away. Damn it, Angel. Back at HQ, Alex kinda sorta confronts Scott and leads him to McCoy's lab to see Gene. And we finally get the actual backstory of what happened, their history, and the time that Gene spent in Sinister's pens. So Cyclops, back when he had two eyes and a ponytail instead of a magnificent loose mane of hair, captured Gene three years ago during a battle with the X-Men. So I thought about this because my, my, first, my first response to this was, haha, bullshit, because Gene is way more powerful. And then I thought about it pretty extensively, and I thought about what the alternate history meant. So Scott's been raised from early childhood and groomed for this by Sinister. Jean, on the other hand, joined the X-Men later than she would have. The X-Men started later than they would have, and was still getting the hang of her powers at a you know, much, 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 or at least a few years older than she would have been in the 616. So I am willing to accept that victory based on continuity and with the qualifier that on any equal setting, Jean could kick Scott's ass. Oh, yeah. And Sinister was super happy about this because, as we know from the main universe, he's like, hey, Summer's DNA, Grey DNA, that's what I want. And so he and his people did their best to try to not just imprison Jean and experiment on her, but to convince her to join up with them. And this is the first time that that's really explicit. I mean, she was thrown into the breeding pens, but here we find out yeah, but it was more like near the breeding pens, and she was more a guest than a prisoner. Well, she is, in this universe, an alpha-level mutant is the highest they can get. So she is an alpha-level mutant. She's incredibly powerful. She's absolutely the kind of, of figure whom a Team Apocalypse would try to recruit regardless. 
So having her land in their lap must have seemed you know, incredibly expedient. They, they tried, they, you know, they gave her the best treatment. They basically were like, come on, look how great your life could be if you only accepted this incredibly horrific system. Now, meanwhile, she and Cyclops got closer and he started to question the ethics of the stuff around him. He was figuring out how he could free her clandestinely when Wolverine decided to come break her out and things got hella awkward. That's uh, Logan, not the big purple guy who's called Wolverine, to clarify. Right, Weapon X, sorry. So Alex has decided that because of all this backstory that we, the readers, have just conveniently had laid on us, therefore Scott and Jean must be working together, which, in fact, they're actually totally not. It's totally a coincidence. But ironically, they will be henceforth specifically because of Alex's assumption. (laughs) Yeah... That said, Havoc does have, like, actual straight-up evidence that Cyclops was breaking prisoners out of the pen, so, you know, that's kind of all he needs. Right, and he's also got the Guthries as backup. And so he is able to seduce Scott and to turn him over to Dr. McCoy, alongside Jean. And Scott and Jean work together to break out, and I love the way this works, because in a scene straight out of the lead-up to the Dark Phoenix saga, Jean telekinetically removes Scott's visor, even though their hands and feet are all bound, so that he can zap the captors. Like, they're not lovers here, they're not teammates, but there's still that same connection and that same level of cooperation just inherent to the two of them. Yeah, even in the universes where they're, they're no kind of couple— they work very well together. Like, they are very, very good at rapid collaboration. And Jean gets that, and so she asks Scott to help her, and he replies, You're asking me to openly rebel against Apocalypse? I made that choice the moment I met you. Hell yeah. So she decides that the two of them, while they still can, are going to liberate the pens or die trying, which is... Extra important, because with Sinister gone, Apocalypse says, Fuck it. Call the pens. Hey, Rex the human, go order my infinites to just kill every human and mutant in there. Which brings us to the final issue of Factor X, Reckonings. Written again by John Francis Moore, penciled by Steve Epting and Terry Dodson, inked by Al Milgram, and colored by Glynis Oliver. And the cover to this issue is fucking great. It's like a low shot in between and underneath Scott and Alex, who are grabbing each other's wrists and, like, powering up to zap each other. It actually reminds me a lot of the cover of X-Factor number 38 from Inferno, where Jean and Madeline are clasping hands and shooting all their power stuff at each other. It's a nice little parallel there. Oh, that's a really good point. I didn't catch that. Oh, it's just such a good cover. So much about this is so good. And honestly, this is maybe my favorite issue. I I wrote a lot of the outline for this one, and I'm sorry if you don't like quotes because it's full of them because there are so many good quotes. I mean, John Francis Moore, man. Yeah. So Havoc is really excited to call the pens because he's just awful on every conceivable level. And God, looking down at them, Steve Epting does such a good contrast between the kind of magnificent, streamlined, perfect golden glory of Apocalypse's citadels and, you know, barracks and courtrooms and stuff. Skywings. Uh, Skywings. And just the gritty wreckage down below. And man, here we just see this two-page spread of all of these prisoners and like, ripped clothing and bandages all over and they're like injured people holding each other and a lot of the people in the page you can't tell if they're dead or unconscious or sleeping or whatever like it's just it's pitiful like in a very literal sense like i just felt so much pity looking at all of these characters especially contrasted with havoc and the emf above just not even seeing them as people at all I mean, there are some pretty direct social parallels that that I feel like we should be pointing to or that people should be recognizing with those descriptions. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. No, this is a series all about class and the politics around it, and I think it's really masterfully done. Like, we've talked about, you know, how the AOA is uh, X-Men where mutants aren't a metaphor, but that's not to say there aren't a lot of metaphors going on here. Well, and a lot of things that were metaphors in 1995 and are very different metaphors in 2020. I mean, again, if you've been following the news, if you have any history or or understanding of things like immigration justice and the prison abolition movement, uh, 
and especially the urgency of those things right now. Um, this is going to, you know, hit home. Well, the Bedlams, Jay, you mentioned that they just see themselves as heroes. And so, yeah, they're really not into this. Jesse points out. We're the mutant elite. Fighting alpha rebels is one thing, but slaughtering the weak and wounded is beneath our station. And that's not Havoc's only disappointment, because he now hears that Cyclops and Jean broke out, and promptly annihilates the messenger because, again, total douchebag in this universe. I mean, that's what Apocalypse usually does when he gets bad news, too. Yeah, well, fair enough. So, Scott and Jean's plan? They're gonna take out the Brain Trust so that the prisoners can break free of their stupor and fight back, and then they're gonna cause a power outage to assist in the chaos. Jean is confident that she can do this because between issues, and specifically in the series X-Men, number four, they met up with a mysterious stranger, the one and only Nate Gray, and after that, her her telepathy's been feeling supercharged. And it's also gotten her and Scott sort of questioning some things about their dynamic in this world because there was something going on with them and Nate and some kind of bond and connection that none of them could really entirely pin down. As Jean says, This may sound crazy, but I think in another world, things might have been very different for us. Maybe, but we can only play the cards we've been dealt and try to keep in the game. They are just such a good team together, whether they're a couple or not. And I I love that about the two of them. I love that, like, whatever the bond is, there's always some kind of bond that, like, it's more enduring than the specifics of it. Oh, for sure. One of the things that perennially frustrates me about the 616 is that because of when Jean died and came back and the ways that the world's been remade since, we've never gotten to see them in a dynamic of being friends and colleagues. Agreed, yeah. I was definitely disappointed when they got back together after Jean was resurrected. Like, okay, it kind of makes sense. I'm not saying it's out of character. It's just that that would have been such a cool dynamic to see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they've got the next best thing, which is a house where there are like six connected bedrooms, but... <laughs> yeah. A four. So... <laughs> The Bedlam brothers find Scott and Jean, but Scott, like, immediately, almost effortlessly inspires the Bedlam brothers to join the side of the heroes, which makes sense, because A, Scott's a super inspirational leader, especially when he believes in what he's talking about, and B, the Bedlams are pretty okay dudes, despite some of the stuff they've done. Okay, despite most of the stuff they've done. Well, and specifically, they are dudes who give no fucks about the cause. They are not morally or philosophically aligned with Apocalypse. They want to do cool stuff with their powers and command respect and adoration. Like, that's really all they're in it for, which isn't necessarily better, but it does make them much easier to sway to the side of, you know, less overt evil. So the Bedlam brothers hold off the pursuing Guthrie siblings while Scott and Jean escape, And the Bedlams win pretty easily because their mutant powers are basically to cheat. And uh, I love how Terry tells his brother, One of these days, Jess, we're going to have to give up this reckless behavior. They're just such fun action movie cliches. Over at the Brain Trust, Jean does indeed take them out, despite how much trouble she had with them before. She uses what Logan taught her, how to push through her pain, and just blows them the fuck up. Sort of comically covering both her and Scott in, like, brain goo. Ew. Yeah. And they also take out the power. They're successful in that goal, too. Just as Havoc is about to hit the imprisoned Scarlet for telling him that she's a spy and pregnant. Because, God damn it, Alex, you are the worst. Now, this is where Beast gets what would be poetic justice if we didn't know for sure that he survives. He's been doing sort of a Dr. Moreau thing for a while, and all of his animalistic prisoners, now freed, attack him and pile on him. Ideally, they'd just, you know, eat him and that would be at the end of that, but it's absolutely not, and he will in fact survive to make his way over to the 616. And we continue our disaster climactic montage over in heaven because Apocalypse's Infinites have come to shut the club down. They're like, hey, you had Scarlet and she was a traitor and over in Amazing X-Men, you had Karma and she was a traitor. Angel, however, uh, is not about to take this lying down. Treason? Let me show you treason. 
And he circles all the infinites with flames from a flamethrower and flies away down an elevator shaft. I, don't you mean swoops away down an elevator shaft? That is definitely some swooping. It totally is, and I love his line as he does. So much for playing both sides. Now I'm just one more fallen angel who will never see heaven again. So dramatic, Warren Kenneth Worthington III, and I'd be disappointed if you weren't. Based on the way he reacted to those previous arrests, I sort of get the vague sense here that he finally turned on the infinites, be not because of any deep moral connection, but because he's really mad they messed up his bar. Yeah, probably. Well, Havoc does make his way to the center of the action and find Scott and Jean, and Havoc and Cyclops fight, but of course, as we know, their powers don't work on each other. Havoc is delighted because this means that they'll just have to kill each other with their bare hands, and he thinks that's great because he's a big ol' creep. Cyclops tries to defuse the situation. It doesn't have to be this way. Yes, it does. I wish you'd never been born! I know, I've heard you say that all my life. Get over it! And he punches him out, and goddamn, it is satisfying. Oh, it, it really is. Because this is, this is, yeah, I, t I talked about my very mixed feelings about setting up Age of Apocalypse Cyclops as a sympathetic figure. The thing that establishes this best is just setting him up with a foil who's so much worse in every way. Oh, so much worse. But Cyclops isn't going to kill Havoc. He's not going to kill his brother. My hands are stained with too much blood from the years I blindly followed Sinister and Apocalypse. This war has made us all do things we regret. But for what it's worth, there's a part of you Sinister couldn't manipulate. Some place that wasn't corrupted by the cruelty and hatred around you. I wonder if that's enough? I believe in redemption. And now, more than ever, I believe in you, Scott Summers. And they lead the prisoners away from the stronghold. So God, I have I have such mixed feelings here. Because on one hand, yes, this is this is a a character waking up to the fact that he's been complicit in atrocities that he's been groomed to commit since childhood. On the other hand, he still has committed those atrocities. He has, yeah. And I mean, as much as there are some bits that soften it, like, you know, that Jean wasn't horribly abused in the breeding pits when she was there. But and how the many other people were? Well, right, exactly. Like, the fact is, he was he still oversaw that. And I guess you could argue that if he just openly rebelled, he just would have been killed. And this way, he could at least save some lives. But it's really an open question. I think I would feel much better about this series if Jean hadn't had her final inspirational speech, if there hadn't been the, you know, I believe in redemption, I believe in you, or at least if it had been gray, or if it had been more of, well, yeah, you've done all that stuff, so now do something right. Yeah, yeah. But as a story, I think John Francis Moore does a really good job of selling it. I think he makes Cyclops as sympathetic as he could possibly be given the character's history in The Age of Apocalypse. He does, and I think if there's if there's a point that he makes that's to be made here that's a really valuable takeaway from this, it's it's the value of of continuing to push back philosophically and argue because, you know, it's possible Cyclops would have come to this on his own, but much, much, much less likely. Yeah, so good job, Jean Grey. And so as the series ends, the two of them lead the prisoners away from Apocalypse's stronghold. And of course, the unconscious Havoc wakes up. In fact, he's awakened by Wolfsbane, which, again, so sad, and vows revenge, which will lead right into X-Men Omega. Just want to say for the record that if this series had been a movie, the closing, like, post credit shot would have been just Havoc's eyes snapping open. Oh, like at the end of Space Mutiny, one of my favorite bad movies of all time? But hopefully without the, like, long, long, long wait while they just focused on his closed eyes for, like, 15 seconds. That's the great thing about comic books, is uh, the reader can largely control the pace. Man, Space Mutiny is such a bad movie. I love it so much. So, as far as characters that we see later. So, Jay, you mentioned that Jesse Aronson will be in the 616. He will indeed show up in X-Force and briefly join the team. We're also actually going to see Terry. He's going to be a character named King Bedlam in the new Hellions arc, and there's there's a lot going on there. Uh, as for Elizabeth Guthrie, yeah, yeah, she's just sort of 
a girl in the 616. Dark Beast, sometimes. though. Sometimes. Dark Beast, though, is indeed going to be a recurring villain across universes for many, many years to come. Which brings us to our spotlight topic this episode, as we sort of focus in on a different aspect of the Age of Apocalypse every episode that we're covering it. This week, it's all about the villains. And a lot of this discussion, I think, is going to be dominated by characters in Factor X, simply because it has, like, more interesting villains than the rest of the Age of Apocalypse combined. It really does. They're not necessarily the big bads, but the big bads in the Age of Apocalypse are by and large kind of boring. Yeah, yeah, they kind of are, and I think the Elite Mutant Force works really well as sort of like a middle ground. They're still very powerful, they're still very central, they're still influential within the story, but by virtue of not being these almost elemental forces like Apocalypse or even the Horsemen, we get to know them as people. And and I like that we have these different archetypes, like we have the Summers Brothers being the sort of reluctant heroic figure and his shitty brother. We have the Guthries just having completely bought in. We have the Bedlam Brothers who just want to be awesome and aren't really considering the implications of that. We have the Bobiers, North Star and Aurora, who, I mean, they just suck basically and they would suck whoever they were working for. But they also are largely disinterested in and don't really see the humanity of anyone but each other, which is in a lot of ways sort of an exaggeration of some stuff that goes with them in the 616. Totally. And I think that's what works, is all of these characters are either characters who you could see totally going in that direction. Like, honestly, even Havoc. I love Alex Summers, but there's so much resentment and bitterness in the character in the 616. As a rule, I think mid-level villains tend to be much more interesting than extremely high-level villains, because they've got somewhere still to go. When you've got characters like Apocalypse and like his, his inner circle of horsemen— They've got all the power already. They've taken over the world. All they really have to do is hold on to it. And there's nothing to really define them beyond that. There's nothing for them to push back against, and there's nothing for them really to struggle toward. Well, and I think that works well to have characters like that, to have them as these these archetypes. Like, I was trying to think about this, like what role each of the current horsemen fill, like the current horsemen in the present of the Age of Apocalypse, because of course there have been a bunch. And basically, I think you have Holocaust, who's the bully, you have Sinister, who's the schemer, Abyss, who's the monster, and Mikhail, who's the wild card. Mm, no, Mikhail is, if you're going for a villainous archetype, Mikhail is much more the false friend. Okay, yeah, yeah, that that, that works as well. But... They don't really have to have character dynamics or evolution because they're just these massive forces that mainly exist to define the world and for other people to oppose, like sometimes even the EMF. Yeah, they're almost more setting than they are characters. That's a really good way of putting it, yeah. And I think that's an important thing to have a villain be. I don't think all of your villains need to be these deep, conflicted, complex characters. Some of them can just be straight-up evil as a part of the world. Some people just suck. Exactly. And we'll learn more about the particulars of that in various other series. Like, all of the horsemen get a spotlight in one series. Uh, We already saw Holocaust get his in Astonishing X-Men, and we'll see the rest as we cover more of these books. Oh god, Mikhail is so creepy. He really, really is. Speaking of creepy fucking dark beast! Yeah, so we talked a lot in this episode proper about why dark beast is so horrifying. But he is one of the best villains of this series, and I would say, honestly, of Marvel. Like, he is really scary. And he's not, you know, we're we're talking about villains as sympathetic or not and complex motivation. He is, by and large, completely unsympathetic. But he's just familiar enough to really get under your skin if you're an X-Men fan. Oh, absolutely. Like, every time he's on page, my skin freaking crawls. And that's great. Like, having a villain that is that just icky and disturbing and scary i mean that's what villains should be sometimes which is kind of an obvious segue into the villain in the age of apocalypse i find most unsettling who's sugar man oh yeah we haven't talked about sugar man yet because he is in generation next which we we haven't gotten to but yeah he's like Like, if Dark Beast is beast without the morals, then Sugar Man is Dark Beast without the logic, I guess, without the the order. Sugar Man is a nightmare monster. Sugar Man is specifically the amorphous protean thing that you think might be under your bed or in your closet, but so much worse. Like, he's, he belongs, he, he is a children's villain and a children's nightmare, and I think good evidence of how much scarier those are than adults tend to give them credit for. 
Oh, yeah. And I mean, we'll talk about this a ton when we get to Generation next, but his character design works so well for that. Like, his design by Chris Bocello. He's basically, if Modoc were a spindly bodybuilder street punk scientist i don't even know how you would describe him like he's this giant head with an enormous mouthful of jagged teeth and a big tongue and too many little tiny arms and a couple little tiny legs and and he sounds silly from that description and he is if you break his description down to its component parts but somehow in context he's utterly unsettling and terrifying which again is i think part of why he works so well And honestly, like, so he also makes it out of the Age of Apocalypse. I don't think he's ever quite as effective. In the same way that Mojo was never quite as effective after the original Anacenti Art Adams miniseries, you know? Like... Oh, absolutely agreed. Yeah, once a character like that uh, gets out of a setting where they can just do whatever they want with no consequences, uh, they stop working as well. And again, Sugar Man is scary... Well, he's scary for a lot of reasons, but part of what makes him so scary is that we see him and experience him through kids' eyes. Totally. Changing gears, I want to talk about another villain from one of the other series that we haven't talked about. I want to talk about Callisto from Excalibur. Boy, do I not buy Callisto as a villain. At least not a villain in this universe. Well, so in Excalibur, she is sort of this ostensibly neutral figure who helps prisoners, you know, get from one place to another, or I guess refugees is a better term, and ends up um, killing a whole lot of them to loot their stuff. And I don't know, that's one of those that's one of those types of villain transformations in the Age of Apocalypse that I think is really effective. The, oh shit, I thought you were better than this kind of villains. You know, like a lot of the heroes in the 616 who end up villains in 295, they're just inverted. It's just like, I was a superhero, now I'm a supervillain. And with Callisto, she just turns disappointingly, banally wrong. Yeah, it's almost more frustrating for its its lack of drama. So... There's one villain who we haven't talked about, and that's the big one. That's Apocalypse himself. Old Blue Fishlips himself, yeah. It's interesting that in the Age of Apocalypse, where this dude runs half the world and is working on taking over the rest of it, it's almost like he's a a minor character. Like, yes, everything he does is what sets all of this in motion, and yes, he's the most powerful being on the planet, but he's just sort of this understood truth to the age of apocalypse like his plan is just so out in the open and straightforward that i think in some ways even more than the horseman like you were talking about earlier jay he just is the setting more than he's a character well yeah he is ubiquitous there's no part of the universe and no panel that that's not suffused with him and his, his impact and I think that works so well because it really it really adds this air of inevitability and invincibility to him. Like Apocalypse just is, and it makes anybody who tries to rebel against him, it makes their goals seem futile. Well, and scale too. And this is fascinating because this is an Apocalypse whom we're seeing coming relatively recently out of things like The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, where we get a very different take on Apocalypse long, long after his ascension when he's actually in his decline yeah, totally. And here he's just he's just everything. And we'll get to him more as well. We'll get to all of these villains more. But I love the audacity of a series that for four months was like, no, nah, we're going to look at the bad guys and we're going to look at some characters you like and turn them into bad guys. And God damn, it works. It does. Again, I think this might be the best of the central series. Now, this book aside, we have a lot of listeners and our listeners true to Ex-readers have a lot of questions. Roy Hankins asks on Tumblr, Has there ever been a continuity-slash-universe wherein Cyclops-slash-Scott Summers took up the mantle of Mr. Sinister? No. We've seen another universe where Sinister raised Cyclops and Havoc, but in general, Sinister doesn't tend to have heirs. He occasionally has people into whom he has seeded genetic booby traps in hopes of eventually taking them over and rendering himself immortal, but he really doesn't groom successors. Well, and in terms of Cyclops, I honestly don't know if that would be his style. Like, we usually see Cyclops serving some kind of leader, but in terms of times when that hasn't been the case— we basically have, when he was leading X-Factor, where basically he was just following Xavier's dream anyway, so it doesn't really count, but then we have the Utopia era and the Revolutionary era where he was sort of leading his own movement, and either time, I think we really got to see 
who Scott is when a mentor is not directly in charge, and he didn't turn into a new Xavier or even a new Magneto. He was just himself. He's also never been Sinister's style of mastermind. He's a strategist and he's a tactician, but he's not that that is not the archetype that he falls into. He's he's not a schemer in the ways that sin, that define Sinister. That said, I kind of want to see Cyclops with Sinister's silly cape. I think he could look pretty fucking cool in it. I think ev- I think there should be a universe that's the same but everyone has capes. Everyone would get so tangled up, and, like, if anybody ever turned a floor fan on, like, half the room would get sucked into it. Oh, it would be fucking hilarious. Okay, so an anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, We can all agree that Mutie is an in-universe racial slur. Is mutants calling humans flat scans also a racial slur that they should avoid using? So at one point in, I want to say, Phalanx Covenant Generation Next, Jubilee refers to humans as flat scans, and that always kind of bugged me because like jubilee can be a jerk but she's not that kind of jerk because yeah that is totally a racial slur some of what constitutes racism in fact a lot of it is determined by power dynamics by institutional power and institutional oppression but that's a model that breaks down around mutants and it's a place where the mutant metaphor breaks down because mutants are whether or not they have they have political or social power they do have significantly more power than humans in a, in a direct way. So I feel like it's it's a place where it's not that the power dynamics disappear or stop mattering. It's where they become significantly more complex. Anyway, if you're a mutant, um, maybe generally avoid calling people flat scans. It's also just not very creative insult. Speaking of creative insults, we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts, like the creative insults of the angry Claremontian narrator. You stand at a crossroads, Robert. In one direction lies your past. In the others, possible futures. Will you learn from your mistakes, or live mired in guilt, forever bound to a past you dare not repeat? Or will you take the road of David Hoffman and the unpleasant and obviously allegorical fate to which it leads? I mean, obviously the latter. After all, if you didn't go for the worst possible option, you wouldn't be so miserably, tediously predictable. All right, and the mic here passes to the multiversal menace, Dark Beast. How did Mrs. McCoy's baby boy find himself so enthusiastically employed? Why, I'd say it was a delightful melange of scientific acumen, infectious charisma, and a complete lack of morals. And speaking of that employment, Derek McElroy, how are you? And just what did you witness of last night's egregiously illegal egress from the pens? No, don't answer my turbine-manacled miscreant. Far quicker to cut to the heart of the matter. Well, the brain, anyway. Where is that bone saw? Ah, you have it, Matt B., you charming scamp. You're my favorite mutant mammalian hybrid, you know, all red of tooth and claw. Why, it's almost a shame to have to recycle you for raw materials. But plenty of time for that later. For now, science. And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and New Fairfield, Connecticut, currently in exile from Forest Hills, New York, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next episode, we'll be back with the good guys in the dark, dark pages of Generation Next. Next.